Turning your Bibles, church, to the uh, book of 1 Corinthians today. We're going to be in chapter 11. While you're doing so, I don't know if you've ever been in New York City. Um, if you have, either, either you love it or you hate it. It's kind of no in between. I tend to love it. And if you know New York, what you'll know is that New York is known for many things, one being their food, um, one being Broadway, um, and another is... Uh, Knockoff goods, knockoff goods, and it, it's it, it's full. When you, when you're looking for it, you go to New York, you'll just see nothing but but fake things, for counterfeit things. For instance, you'll you'll go to Times Square, and, and you'll see these entertainers who are dressed up like characters from from Disney World. And if you've been to Disney World like me, I love I've shared from this pulpit many times my affinity for Disney World. Um, you, I know when I, go to Disney, when I go to Times Square and I see these characters dressed like Mickey Mouse, I'm like, that's not, that's not Mickey Mouse. Because like, first of all, he's like 30 pounds lighter than Mickey Mouse. Second of all, his like nose is falling off. Third, his, his personality is such that he's asking for a tip so like, I, I know Mickey's not on hard times these days. I own stock in Disney, and I, I pretty much know that he, the heart behind this guy who's trying to portray Mickey Mouse, he's got it all wrong. Second, you can walk across the street, to, and, and you see this. You, see, you can buy fake Louis Vuitton purses. Now, on the outside, you might look and see that they're, they look like a Louis Vuitton purse. They've, they've got the logo. They've got the strap. They've got, they've got the right coloring and all this but if you've ever seen a real Louis Vuitton purse, or you've held a real, a real Louis Vuitton purse, you look there and you see, this does not have the elements of a true Louis Vuitton purse. Just because it has the logo on the outside does not mean that it's a real Louis Vuitton purse. And perhaps my most discouraging moment with counterfeit goods in New York City actually came when I was 10 years old. It's probably about 1995, 1996, somewhere around there. We were traveling with my parents in New York City, and we somehow made our way into a back alley. I don't remember the gist of the story. I don't know why we're there, but I do know this, that we came home with a VHS version of The Lion King, which we were thrilled about. And we were thrilled about it because Lion King was still in theaters. And so we, we went there, and we were like, this is awesome. We just saw it in theaters a couple weeks before. We take it home, and we put it in the VHS player. And I'm like, this is weird. Like, I was young. I didn't quite get it. But it was a bootleg copy of The Lion King. Some guy had brought his, like, you know, 1992 camcorder into the theater and recorded Lion King and sold it to us in New York City. It did not contain the elements of what we would expect to see when we see a movie. Good cinematography, good graphics, good sound. Heads not popping up in the middle of the movie. You get what I'm saying? I mean, sure, it had the box. It had the logo on the outside. And, and it had the label, the Lion King. But it was not the Lion King. See, when it comes to New York City and you see all these counterfeit goods, they have the outward facade of close enough that people will accept. People will pay tips to get a, get a photo with Mickey. They will buy the fake Louis Vuitton purse because it's close enough. They will go and they'll buy bootleg DVDs because it's just close enough. But in all reality, it's not the real thing. In all reality, it's not even close. And it kind of got me thinking about the Christian life a bit. 
Often in the Christian life, we think that, that God is pleased with close enough. That God is pleased with simple outward-looking obedience in the Christian life. An outward facade. As long as we're, quote-unquote, on the outside doing the right-looking things, God will be satisfied with our worship. We can give money to the church, but give in fear or pure obligation without joy and think that God is pleased because we gave anything at all. We'd be wise to remember from Luke 20 that the Lord delighted in the widow's small yet costly offering given with a pure heart to honor God rather than the wealthy who gave a lot financially but for self-glorifying reasons. They both gave money. The Lord accepted one. The Lord did not accept the other. Why? Because of the heart. We can preach. Yet we can, we can preach with selfish ambitions. Paul clearly identifies in, in the book of Philippians that it is possible to preach with selfish ambition and it is possible to preach with a pure heart that desires to honor the Lord. What do you think honors the Lord more? Outward looking facade? Or a heart that desires to honor God? And never is it more evident, oftentimes, I would suggest this morning, that we often just go through the motions. Never is that more evident than when we take communion. We put the plates out, we hop in line, and we mindlessly take the elements out of tradition, out of routine. And if, we're all, if you're like me, maybe I'm the only one but if you're like me, often, your heart is absent. Your heart is longing for far other things than, than, than the glory of Jesus Christ in that moment. This morning, I have a main point, and it is this for us to consider as I talk about the Lord's Supper this morning. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we must partake with unified hearts, Christ-exalting hearts, and repentant hearts. Say that again. As we partake of, of the Lord's Supper, we must partake with unified hearts, Christ-exalting hearts, and repentant hearts. Let's dive into our text this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, 17-22. Let's, let's, let's go ahead and read that. My first point this morning is this. The Lord's, Supper, the Lord's Supper shows us the unity of the church. The Lord's, the Lord's Supper shows us the unity of the church. I get this in verses 17 through 22 this morning. Follow along in your Bibles. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And we're going to continue through the rest of this. But in, this, in, this, in these first few verses, I want us to understand that the Lord's Supper shows us the unity of the church. It's meant to show us the unity of the church. As Paul discusses the topic of the Lord's Supper with the Corinthian church, it's very clear that, that Paul is not pleased with them. Their outward-looking obedience didn't please God in the slightest. In fact, Paul says, you've bastardized the whole meal, Corinthian church. You think you're doing something good by partaking? Well, Corinthians, you must know that the way you're partaking of the Lord's Supper leaves everyone worse off than it did before. In fact, it would be better if you just didn't take it at all than to continue taking it the way that you're taking it. Essentially, Paul is saying, you're doing the Lord's Supper wrong. Doing it wrong. Now, if, if, if we were to take a, a, a modern survey of, among evangelicalism and evangelicals regarding their opinions of the Lord's Supper, we would likely find that most people believe that doing communion the right way involves the number of times that you partake as a church per year. The use of wine versus grape juice. The use of real bread versus a cracker. Communion as a full meal versus communion as simply taking the elements. Now, I'm not suggesting, don't get hung up on that. I'm not suggesting that those things aren't important. They are important. However, in this passage, that is not Paul's main concern. Paul's biggest indictment here in 1 Corinthians 11 centers around the collective heart with which the Corinthian church takes the Lord's Supper. And if we're quite often, that's the thing that we most often miss as we partake the Lord's Supper in our church. So most of my sermon is going to be centered here on point one. Because I want us to get this more than anything. They had the right elements but they had the wrong hearts. In verse 18, Paul tells the church that rumors of division have made their way to him. It seems that this, this division, it wasn't just some isolated case of, of a conflict between one or two people, but it was a large enough problem that it's made its way back to the Apostle Paul. One could say this, that, that divisiveness had become a part of the culture at the church at Corinth. This Greek word for divisions that you'll find here in, in 1 Corinthians 11 is schismata. It's where we get the word schism. And when we, when we think of the word schism, we think of, of parties dividing and, and going their separate ways. And when we, when we consider the church at Corinth, they weren't officially experiencing a, a church split here. It's not what was happening. Physically, they were gathering together. And they were gathering together often. They, but they may have been united in, in physical proximity, but they were certainly divided at heart. To a certain extent, Paul believes that such division has a purifying effect. Do you see there? As it makes a distinction between those who are genuine and those who are truly in Christ. 
There, there are some that partake of the meal in such a way that it is clear where their heart lies. It is not a heart that honors the Lord. It is not a heart that seeks the things of God. It is a heart that seeks to make much of self. It seeks comfort. It seeks to be made much of. It seeks recognition. Yet, at the same time, there are some that partake of the Lord's Supper in such a way that reveals their love for the Lord. They seek to honor Him. Therefore, their hearts are humble. They love the things that God loves, church. They love the people that Christ died for. They seek His glory, not their own. They seek the good of their neighbor over the good of themselves. This is because they have hearts like Jesus. Now, one can imagine, just like any church, that the church at Corinth would have professed to have the same doctrine. We're united in doctrine. I mean, they were coming together, of course, to, to partake of the Lord's Supper after all. However, the way they lived their lives actually showed their true colors. It actually showed their true doctrine. That's why Paul goes to the extent to say, when you come together, it is not even the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's not. Paul is speaking of the church gathering together corporately. These, these weren't just small groups. The, this was the whole church gathering. Assum assumably, they would gather together frequently to partake of the Lord's Supper. However, Paul says, you're doing it wrong, Christians. You're doing it wrong. In fact, it's safe to say you're not actually practicing the Lord's Supper at all. Now, why would Paul say that? Why would Paul say that? Well, this is where a bit of contextualization helps. Oftentimes in, in the book of Acts, and what appears to be true of the church in Corinth, the church would gather together for a full meal. I believe this is what is Jude is talking about in, in Jude 1.12, when he's talking about love feasts. They were, they were coming together, and, and they were gathering together and eating together. It's not that the whole meal itself necessarily constituted the Lord's Supper. However, the Lord's Supper was a part of, and indeed the highlight of this larger, this larger meal. The central focus on the Lord's Supper is the bread and the cup, as we'll focus on in a moment. However, there was a, a larger cultural aspect to what was going on here, friends. As they gathered to eat, Paul says this, that each person would eat his own meal. It's not so much that they were eating before each other. They were all present for the meal. It's as if several different meals were all going on because of their lack of unity. I think that verse 22 gets to the heart of what was going on. If you look in your Bibles, those who had nothing, the poor, were being humiliated. That's the problem here. Specifically, it shows us, the rich were indulging together while the poor were being neglected. For the rich who gathered, the primary purpose of the meal for, for many of them was to satisfy their own desires. Rather than a meal that was meant to symbolize our murdered Savior, these meals were seen by some as a shallow social gathering among friends where they would gluttonize on bread and wine. While many of the rich people indulged to the point of drunkenness, Many poor people had nothing. Do we, do we see the contrast here, church? Do we see the contrast that's being painted here in, in 1 Corinthians 11? Some selfishly indulged while others had nothing. 
One group was admired. The other was ignored. One group felt community. The others felt isolation. One group felt vital. The other group felt useless. One group felt full. The other group felt humiliated. See, the main problem, don't, don't misunderstand this, the main problem here wasn't primarily how much food one was getting over the other. That wasn't the main issue here. The biggest problem was that those types of groups, those types of divisions, those types of factions, that they existed in the first place. That's the problem. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Tom Schreiner, he's one of the, many consider him one of the world's leading experts on the Pauline epistles. And, and he notes this, try, trying to get a, a picture of, of what was happening here. He says, perhaps the rich were eating and drinking in the trisilium, which is uh, the, the, the dining room, and the poor were out in the atrium and not getting sufficient food and drink. One was in the proper places of eating and one just was kind of off to the side as an afterthought. The wealthy stuck together in their seats of honor while the poor were forced to dine together as lower class citizens. See, friends, the problem at the Corinthian church, they were, they were more than just inconsiderate dining habits. That wasn't the problem. It was highlighting more than simple bad manners. The way the church at Corinth practiced the Lord's Supper highlighted a church body that was made up of self-absorbed, self-exalting, and altogether selfish people. When one looked at the church partaking of the supper, they would see factions, cliques, divisions. They would see individual people singled out, both in places of honor, but also in places of shame. And this, specifically, is why Paul says that they aren't practicing the Lord's Supper. And now, aside from simply being a, a mean thing to do, perhaps you don't see why Paul says that it is not the Lord's Supper that they are practicing. For us to follow Paul's rationale, we must turn to 1 Corinthians 10 and see an argument that, that Paul made earlier in his letter to this church. Once we see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, perhaps 1 Corinthians 11 will hit a little bit harder. In referring to, or in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, that's, that's where I'm looking, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, Paul writes this, in referring to communion, he says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And referring to the cup and the bread, Paul is pointing to the elements of the Lord's Supper. And we know that. We take it every week. The, the cup and the bread. As we partake of these elements, friends, we as a church are saying something, not just individually, but collectively. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17, this, this word for participation in the Greek is the word that you might know of as koinonia, which is most often referred to what? Fellowship in English. It is a unique participation based on something common, something, something intimate. 
As the church takes these elements, we are saying collectively that our fellowship is found in Christ. That's what we're saying. We are saying collectively, friends, that we have identified with Christ in his death. We are saying collectively that we are saved by the blood of Jesus alone. That's what we are saying. We are all identifying in the one man, the one body that gives us life. Jesus Christ. In the partaking of this singular bread meant to symbolize the body of Christ, the Lord's Supper shows us that all of these individuals who have put their trust in and Christ are actually one body. That's the picture communion is painting. In other words, one of the main pictures that the Lord's Supper paints is a picture of the oneness of the church because of their oneness in Christ. Friends, do, do you see how collective and unifying that the Lord's Supper is meant to be? Do you? If you don't understand this truth, then you really don't understand the Lord's Supper that we partake each week. And, and so there are were, there were a, few, a few things that we can glean from these, from these verses. First, it is clear that the Lord's Supper is for Christians. The Lord's Supper is for Christians. If Paul says that the partaking of communion is participation in the body and blood of Christ and highlighting our oneness in Christ, he's saying that the Lord's Supper is for Christians. There are no non-Christians in the world who have truly participated in the body and blood of Christ. Not one. Friends, communion is an explicitly Christian meal. To have any non-Christian partake of the Lord's Supper in our church is to completely wreck the picture that communion paints. This means that it is good, proper, and God-honoring to fence the table. This means that those in our church that lead the congregation in communion have the responsibility to protect the table. This does not mean that we will physically remove the elements from someone's hand if they partake or, or, or physically restrain someone from having access to the plate. That's not, that's, not what we're, that's not what we're saying. However, we will rightly proclaim that the Lord's Supper is for Christians only. We will rightly ask them to stay seated and not partake of the Lord's Supper because of what it means. From that point, if they choose to participate, if they choose to participate, the guilt is on their hands. This, this is not an unloving act. This is a gracious act that Jesus also administered as he instituted the Lord's Supper. In the gospel accounts, as Jesus is administering the Lord's Supper, Jesus doesn't just identify his true disciples in the Supper. Jesus also makes a distinction about who is out as well, if you'll remember. Judas may have eaten, but Judas was clearly identified as a traitor, as an outsider. So friends, practically speaking, this also means that the Lord's Supper is not for your unbelieving children. While unbelieving children are a part 
of our families and are active among our church. Until they have put their trust in Christ alone for salvation, they are not an actual part of the body of Christ. Therefore, the Lord's Supper is not for them. Second, the Lord's Supper is to be taken collectively as a local church. In other words, it is not an individual meal. Paul says, if it was about your individual meal, you could stay and eat at your house. In our culture, it is common to see the Lord's Supper taken at home by an individual family or at a wedding between the groom and the bride or even at a parachurch college campus ministry. And while I don't question anyone's love for the Lord who might engage in such practices, I might ask, is that the picture communion seeks to paint? Or, instead, does that look more like everyone eating their own meal? I believe that Scripture shows us that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance for the whole church, meant to paint a picture of the oneness of the whole church collectively. If you are a baptized member of a local church, friends, communion is for you. Brian, are you saying that if I'm not baptized, I shouldn't partake of the supper? Well, perhaps instead of me giving you a hard doctrinal stance, let me ask you a question in return. Why would you want to partake of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and not partake of the ordinance of baptism? Why would you choose one and not the other? Why would you want to identify as a part of the body of Christ, but not identify publicly as a personal disciple of Jesus Christ? Friend, to be a part of the body of Christ is to be a public disciple of Jesus Christ. If this describes you, allow me to encourage you to go public by being baptized. Third, perhaps most importantly, the Lord's Supper is a meal where Christians continually affirm one another in their faith. The Lord's Supper is a meal where Christians continually affirm one another in their faith. If baptism is the initial affirmation of one's faith by a local church, communion is the ongoing affirmation of each other's faith in a local church body. As we are partaking of the Lord's Supper each week, we are declaring that each person taking the meal has trusted in Christ. Their sin has been paid for. Each individual taking the meal was once an enemy of God, but now they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Each one who partakes has the Spirit of God living within them, and they're becoming more like Christ every day. Not only that, but because of the work of Christ, we are now one body. We are no longer strangers and aliens. We are all fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There is no longer hostility between God and man or between individuals who are in Christ. Their differences no longer matter. They are one in Christ. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are all affirming such truths about one another. It's a glorious meal. In fact, we've said many times throughout this ecclesiology study, that the church is the gospel on display. And never is the gospel more on display explicitly than when we take communion together. It's beautiful. Friend, do you see how unifying, encouraging, affirming, and gospel-centric the Lord's Supper is meant to be? You see it. 
It isn't meant to highlight a bunch of individuals. It is meant to highlight one individual, Christ. It is meant to highlight one man's work, the work of Christ. And because of the work of Christ, we can fellowship together knowing that we are one in Christ. This is exactly why the situation in in Corinth was just so abysmal. Instead of pointing to the oneness and fellowship that the church has in Christ, people were highlighting socioeconomic statuses within the body. Differences were being highlighted. Differences were being praised. Some were being held in higher regard than others. In, in In other words, they were rebuilding the wall of hostility that Christ knocked down. They were creating strangers and aliens. They were creating different citizenships. They were creating different bodies altogether. They took the beautiful picture that communion was supposed to, supposed to paint and they vandalized that picture. Rather than affirming their financially impoverished brothers and sisters in their faith, they humiliated them. That's what happened. And you know what? Paul doesn't give them a pass. You read that there? Paul doesn't give them a pass at all. Paul Paul doesn't allow for some neutral attitude towards others in the church that the rich felt like they were better than. Not at all. Paul doesn't say, brothers and and sisters, I I know that you're just really busy. And I know that they were just probably overlooked. I know that you really actually care but I just wanted to draw your attention to, to something that's happening here in your, in, in your church. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't give them a pass. In, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty two, Paul asks them a question. He says this, do you hate the church of God? Paul is equating the neglect and the division to hating the church of God. That's the question he asked them. That's a strong question. That's a blunt question. See, Paul assumes this. Paul assumes that it is possible to have a great friend group, but hate the church. There's no doubt that the conversations between the wealthy members that, that they had with one another, there's no doubt that their conversation was, was, was rich. I'm sure that they all enjoyed hanging around one another as they were all in some similar stage of life. Their wealth provided them similar opportunities, similar acquaintances, similar tastes, similar preferences, etc., etc., etc. In fact, naturally speaking, even apart from the gospel, such people would probably already be really good friends. Yes, they loved their friends. However, in their flesh, they hated the church. They loved the lives that they were building. They hated the body that Christ is building. See, anyone can love a friend group. Anybody. Anybody can love people that look like you, that act like you, that think like you. However, that is not what the church is, beloved. It's not. 
Do you see how Paul constantly describes the church throughout the epistles? The church consists of people from all walks of life. One only needs to look at Jesus' 12 disciples. I preached on this a few years ago. Among them were a wealthy tax collector who worked for Rome and a Jewish zealot. And the zealots were often characterized by their desire to assassinate Roman officials. They're one, Christ. There were disciples that couldn't get their feet out of their mouths, guys like me, and those that were kind and quiet-tempered. There were those that believed in Jesus' resurrection immediately and those who wouldn't believe until they saw the holes in his body. As Christ continued to build his church with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, one can only imagine how much more diverse the church came, became. Understand this, that Jesus is bringing people from every walk of life into his church. So, if giving and sharing your life with people who don't always meet your fleshly standard of fellowship, whatever that standard is, sounds miserable to you, you are going to hate the church. You're going to hate it. Because in the church, there is truly only one standard that matters for fellowship. One. And that is being found in Christ. Amen. Therefore, it's fully appropriate for each of us to ask ourselves, does my attitude towards others show that I hate the church? Do I have a strict preference for people who are in my stage of life? Do I only gravitate towards people who share my same interests? Am I equally committed to people who can't afford to dress as nice as me? Am I standoffish to people who have a different skin color than me? Do I prefer to only experience true fellowship with people who are my age? Do I struggle to love people who aren't as theologically intelligent as me? Here's one. Do I despise other Christians who don't hold my same theological convictions? Do I include families in the church equally who might choose to educate their children differently than our children do, than our family does? We could go on and on and on, highlighting questions that point out division that exists among the church oftentimes. I understand that our natural tendency is to be drawn towards people who are the most like us. However, hear me, church, there is no room for partiality in the church. None. Paul left no room for that in the church at Corinth. Paul doesn't just chalk it up to friend groups. Paul calls it this. He calls it what it is, division. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have close friends. Jesus had close friends. Paul had close friends. And close friends, multiple times throughout the Bible, are called a gift from the Lord. Don't ditch your friends. Make your friend group bigger. <laughs> However, when we gather on Wednesday nights for dinner, do we constantly sit with those same friend groups? And hear me, I'm asking myself these same questions. 
realizing how in my own life I struggle with these things. I'm not pointing the finger here. When we have people over to our homes, are they just people we're the most like? When we branch out and show hospitality to a wide variety of people within the body, when we congregate on Sunday mornings, do we stay in our cliques before and after the service, or do we make our way and greet one another as the Scripture repeatedly tells us to do? Are we at all concerned with people who might be left out of fellowship in our body who are in Christ? Are our eyes and ears open to people who might not feel as included at Community Bible Church? There are all questions we could ask on Wednesday night. Notice Paul doesn't tell the poor that they needed to try a little harder to fit in. It's not a solution. He rebukes those on the in crowd. He doesn't tell the elders to put together a plan to combat this. He rebukes the whole church. Friends, because our natural drift is towards segregated division, we as a church, hear me, must fight intentionally for the unity of the body. Gotta fight for this. It's a fight too, isn't it? You see, Paul isn't concerned simply with a one-time display of unity at the Lord's Supper in Corinth. No, the lack of unity at the Lord's Supper is only a symptom of a larger heart problem at Corinth. One only needs to read the first few verses of 1 Corinthians to see that they were clearly a house divided. The Lord's Supper was one of many and perhaps the most obvious display of their lack of unity. Therefore, Community Bible Church, unity is not something we only pursue at the Lord's table once a week. It's not. Unity within the church is a seven-day-a-week job. We pursue unity Monday through Saturday so that we can put Unity on display as we gather collectively on Sunday. On Sunday, we gather and remember what Christ has done in the scriptures and at the table so that we can pursue unity Monday through Saturday. That's what it looks like. So friends, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is vital to understand that we must do so in authentic gospel unity. Point two, not as long, promise. The Lord's Supper shows us the work of Christ. The Lord's Supper shows us the work of Christ. And we read that in, in verses 23 through 26. Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, friends, next Paul draws our minds to meditate on what Christ did the night before that he was crucified. We know that the night before Jesus was crucified, they enjoyed the Passover meal together in obedience to the Scriptures. According to the law and the Old Covenant, for over 1,500 years, the Israelites celebrated the Passover by sacrificing a lamb. As they partook of the feast, they would recall that it was the blood of the lamb on their doorpost that kept them from the judgment of God and instead redeemed them. We know that faithful Israelites knew that the blood of bulls and lambs could never actually pay for the penalty of their sin. Their sin still had to be dealt with. 
Their hope was in the promised one to come who would fulfill the promise found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Until then, their lives were marked by the necessity of making continual sacrifices by faith for their ongoing sin. They were used to the burden of the law. They were aware of their guilt before God. They understood just the weight of the old covenant. Yet, friends, as you continue to read the Old Testament, they were also aware of a new covenant that God had promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Everyone in this covenant would know the Lord. Everyone. Everyone in this covenant would have the law of God written on their heart. The Lord would remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They would each receive the Holy Spirit inside of them. The most important Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 highlight that their sin would be dealt with. This is because God promised to deliver them from their uncleanliness. Their sin would be forgiven and their their sin would be remembered no more. However, God would not just forget their sin. He would not just sweep it under the rug, friends. Instead, their sin would be paid for in full once and for all. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, 24-25, Paul highlights Jesus telling his disciples that the bread and the, and, and the wine represented his sinless body that was broken for us and his atoning blood that was spilled for us. It was at this moment where Jesus revealed to his disciples once and for all the, the, what the Passover meal and what the Old Testament pointed to most clearly. No longer was there a need for bulls, goats, and lambs. For the one true and final Passover lamb was before them. You see, a few hours after this supper, Jesus would offer himself to make final atonement for our sins. His body would be broken and his blood would be spilled to pay the penalty of our sin before a holy God. Jesus, he didn't do this begrudgingly. Jesus wasn't guilted into this, but he willingly offered himself for the joy set before him. If you are in Christ, Christian, he did this for you. His blood was poured out for you. Like the lamb at the Passover had to be spotless in order to meet God's requirements, our representative had to be spotless as well. The reason Jesus could represent us before God was because he was a sinless man. Jesus met all the righteous requirements of the law that we could never meet. Because of his righteousness in fulfilling the law, Jesus was clearly establishing the new covenant in his blood. Once Jesus made atonement on the cross, the sacrificial system was over. The law was fulfilled. The true intent of the Passover meal would be complete. The sacrificial lamb would be slain and then cry out, It is finished. Christ would take our sin and we would receive his righteousness. So because of this, we can stand forgiven and redeemed and blameless before a holy God. You see, this, this reality is what we as a church are called to remember Week after week after week after week. 
While the Passover meal, according to Exodus 12, 27, was intended to point the Israelites to the time where God passed over the Israelites in Egypt and spared them from the judgment of God as they sprinkled the blood of a lamb on their doorposts, the Lord's Supper in the New Covenant points us to a greater Passover. It points us to the one true final Passover. I'm talking about God's judgment passing over us because the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to us. As a church, we gather together to look back. We acknowledge together that all of our hope was in the past work of our King, King Jesus. The message that we preach every week is this, Christ crucified. The songs that we sing are Christ crucified. We can approach the throne of God boldly in prayer because Christ has been crucified. We can have fellowship together because Christ has been crucified. And as we partake of a meal together, it proclaims this. It proclaims Christ crucified. This, friends, Christ crucified is what we celebrate. And friends, as we partake of the supper, this is how we celebrate. One might ask this. Why do we celebrate this way? Why? Why do we celebrate this way? Well, verse 23 tells us that these are the instructions that Paul received from the Lord. In other words, this is the way that Jesus desires to be worshipped. This communion is his meal. We do not get to define it. We do not get to have our way with it. We do not get to add to it. We partake of the bread remembering Christ's body. We partake of the wine remembering Christ's blood. This is what he has called us, friends, to remember. Yet, in the partaking of communion, do you see this? That we're not just remembering something. We are also declaring something. We as a church declare. We don't just remember. We are declaring Jesus' death. We are declaring with certainty that our sins have been paid for. We are proclaiming where our hope is found. We are proclaiming that the curse of sin is broken. We will live with him because of his atoning death. We are declaring that because of the death of Christ, God is building one body, his church. We're making a declaration. And we are called to proclaim this message, knowing this glorious reality that Jesus Christ will come again. It's a deeply eschatological meal, friends. Yes, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, will come for his bride. We are not waiting for some other atoning work. We aren't waiting for some other sign, some other prophet, some other new religion, some other new revelation. Friends, we await a Savior. We aren't waiting for a war to destroy the earth. We aren't waiting for climate change to destroy the earth. We aren't waiting on, on corrupt politicians to destroy the earth. We await a king who will come to redeem the earth, to rule in righteousness, to gather his bride and prepare a feast before them, friends. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste of that meal. We will be with him in his glory without the presence of sin or suffering forever. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, this is what we declare. So, 
As we partake of communion each week, we take the bread and the cup knowing that our sin is paid in full. We remember that Christ, we remember what Christ did for us in offering himself on the cross. Therefore, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper should be a, a moment of radical self-denial. We don't partake of this meal in order to make God happy with us. We partake of the meal because the Father is happy with Christ's work attributed to us. Because of this, we should partake of the elements with the utmost humility and the utmost joy. We must remember that salvation was something we received because of Christ. Being placed into the church was something that we received because of Christ. It seems unfathomable to me that we could walk around pridefully and arrogantly while taking the Lord's Supper each week. As we partake, let us remember the glorious work of Christ, why it was needed, and how sufficient it is to save. Finally, point three. The Lord's Supper should bring about repentance. The Lord's Supper should bring about repentance. We see this in verses 27 through 34 where Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. I want us to understand when it comes to the Lord's Supper. I want us to understand how serious Paul is here. Okay? It's not just some silly, trivial religious ceremony that, that we can embrace half-heartedly. It's not something we make light of. Ironically, we, we aren't commanded to celebrate Christmas as Christians. But far too many Christians take Christmas more seriously and intentionally than the Lord's Supper, which we are commanded to observe. I love Christmas. Don't write me. If we're reading Paul correctly, taking the Lord's Supper flippantly could be a grave mistake. Last week I opened up my sermon asking you which doctrines would you die for? I thought about opening my sermon this week with which doctrines could you die for? Let's continue trying to understand what Paul's saying here. Paul says, if you're partaking of, of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, you're sinfully trampling on the body of Christ. You're minimizing and despising what Christ did on the cross. For the Corinthian church, partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner looked like unrepentantly living in a disunified manner within the church. Even as they partook of the Lord's Supper, they didn't do so in unity. They were divided. 
Never mind the fact that Christ's broken body and spilled blood paid for every single member of that church. Never mind the fact that the Lord's Supper was intended to point to the work of Christ in saving and building His church through the cross. The Corinthians presumed upon the grace of God and desired to cling to their sin rather than to cling to the cross. Christians, hear me. We must recognize this. Disunity in the church is a giant deal to Christ. It's giant. Conflict between believers and the local church must be dealt with. These are not sins we can simply ignore. Disunity in the church grieves the heart of God and makes a mockery of Christ's work on the cross. In fact, perhaps we can remember what was on Christ's mind the night before His resurrection. In John 17, as Jesus prays His high priestly prayer, He prays for the church. You know what He prays? John 17, He says, in praying for the church, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have not given to them, or I have given to them, that they may be even one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus wants the unity of the church to reflect the unity of the Trinity. That's the idea. Do you see how important the unity of the church is, Christian? It isn't just about your testimony. It isn't just about the testimony of our local church. The unity of the church is deeply about the reputation of God. From Jesus' prayer, we know that God uses the unity of the church in a way that points the unbelieving world towards Christ. God uses the unity of the church to point to God's love for the world. Christians, see that the way we treat one another, the way we love one another, and the way we pursue one-minded unity is deeply, deeply, deeply important to the heart and to the glory of God. Not even just about you. We don't pursue unity for unity's sake. It's about God. Therefore, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, Paul tells the Corinthians to examine themselves as they come together for the Lord's Supper. As they partake of the elements, they should look at their lives and see if they have sinned against the body of Christ and any member of it. They should ask this, have I engaged in activity that is contrary to the unity of the body of Christ? And in that moment, they should confess that sin to the Lord and repent. If disunity or hurt relationships exist in the body, I think we can take the principle found in Matthew 23 through 24. James pointed this out to me in our preach team meeting yesterday. It says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, uh, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I know that this passage in Matthew isn't explicitly talking about communion. 
But I think the same unifying principle applies. If communion is meant to point to the unity of the church, and you know that disunity exists among brothers, or among you and somebody else, go and make it right before worshiping the communion. This is the God-honoring, God-fearing, neighbor-loving thing to do. Yet, we also know that as we sin against our brothers, it is always only a way of acting out against our already sinful hearts. External sin is a result of internal sin. External sin towards our neighbor is a symptom of a heart that is primarily sinful against God. As David said, against you only have I sinned. What's well, true, but it's not true. He's just highlighting the most important thing, that he sinned against God first and foremost. As we examine our hearts before communion, we would do well. We would do well, church, to repent of all sin, hidden and public. We should repent of all pride, lust, anger, and idolatry in our lives. Do not, friends, listen, do not wait for the sin to spring up and to do the maximum amount of public and personal damage before dealing with it. But wait. Communion is one time each week that we should make quick work of sin. I know that even in our church, there are certain segments of our body that, that feel like any call to repentance is our guilt trips. Yet, I, I want us to plead with you to see Paul's warning here. Paul has already acknowledged Christ's atoning work on the cross and its sufficiency to save. Paul is talking to Christians here. Yet he says this to Christians, hear me. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. See, Paul doesn't have some lax view of the Lord's Supper. Paul tells the church that if they ignore their sin while partaking of the Lord's Supper, they drink judgment on themselves. That's what he says. You might ask, what does Paul mean by that? God's bride would never receive judgment, would it? Well, friend, we don't have to go far to see what Paul has in mind by receiving judgment. Paul says, that because some in the church continued on in unrepentant, divisive sin among the body, some were weak, some were ill, some, in fact, have died. There's a hashtag that I commonly see on Instagram, like hashtag dumb ways to die. And as, as you can get, I don't know if anybody's has seen that, but I guess I keep seeing it because I like watching the videos. <laughs> But these dumb ways to die, you can probably guess what it is. It's, it's, it's people who are doing crazy things, like jumping off of cliffs or, or, or just doing death-defying things or, or, or driving their car too fast or just honestly just doing dumb, foolish things that could kill you, but they're having fun. And I always look at these videos and I just think, what they're doing, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. They might be having fun, but it's just not worth it. Friends, I, I don't know how often God kills Christians because they rebelliously refuse to discern the body and repent of their sins. Don't know. 
nor should we be going around and, and trying to discern whether someone's sick. Is it because that they have sin? That's not our job. We're all called to discern our own body. Amen? However, I can tell you this with certainty. That this would be the most moronic way to die in the entire world for Christian. Just moronic. Why? Because we have a Savior who has already paid the penalty of our sin. He has put His Spirit in us and empowered us to repent and walk in obedience. When we confess our sin to Him, He has already forgiven us in Christ. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. So friend, hear me, why would you continue in your rebellion? Why? It's nonsensical. It's illogical. Why would you presume on the grace of God? Experience, friend, the freedom of walking in the light. However, here's the reality. when We never, none of us, we never come to the table without sin. Ever. None of us. Each time we partake, we come with hearts that have not loved the Lord the way that we should that week. We have not honored or obeyed Him the way that we should. We have neglected people and responsibilities that God has called us to steward. We have chosen to walk the path of anger, resentment, jealousy, and greed. We have, we have engaged in idolatry, and the list could go on and on and on. As we partake of communion and we fix our eyes on Jesus, we have an opportunity right then and there to remember the cross. We have an opportunity then and there to declare our daily dependence on Jesus to save us in a walk in righteousness. Every time we partake of the supper, we have the opportunity to repent. To close this morning, Want us to consider Paul's words in verse 34. Let us not come together for judgment. Wouldn't that be our desire? <laughs> a very small scale desire for the church. We have all these great grand plans, and I think this would be a good one. We come together, let us not come together for judgment. Let this not be a house of judgment, mourning, bitterness, resentment, death, and decay. Let this be a house of of joy, fellowship, love, happiness, servant-heartedness, worship, adoration, repentance, dependence, and unity found in Christ alone. May we remember who Christ has made us as a church. So he's made us a unified body. May we remember that this is only possible because of Christ's body that was broken for us and his blood that was spilled for us. Maybe remember that our only hope is the grace and mercy of God and that we have been given those things in Christ. We have nothing more to do. We have nothing more to earn. Christ merited all of our salvation, friends, from start to finish. And as we recall such glorious truths, may we respond corporately in faith, repentance, and joyful obedience in light of what Jesus Christ has done. Amen.